Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Life begins at 40, goes the age-old adage. And while that might not be exactly true for all of us, I seem to have developed a tendency to groan whenever I sit down, for example, or when I stand up, it might just be true for my guest on the podcast this week. Wes Streeting has, in some people's eyes, been the future of the Labour Party for years. Which is kind of weird, given he spent most of his parliamentary career languishing on the back benches without any kind of job, and only made the shadow cabinet for the first time last year. Now, he's done loads of cool stuff in his first 39 years, of course, not least dragging himself from a poverty-stricken council estate in East London to the bright lights of Cambridge University. He's been president of the National Union of Students. He won a marginal seat off the Tories in 2015, when most of his Labour colleagues were getting tonked all over the country. And most recently, he's battled through a cancer diagnosis and returned to work in Parliament within a matter of months. But it's the years ahead that suddenly look rosiest for Wes Streeting, established now as a key member of Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet, and with the Labour Party some 20 points ahead in the polls. As shadow health secretary, amidst a genuine NHS crisis, he has one of the party's most high-profile roles. And he's seen as one of their very best performers, both in the House of Commons... The Conservatives promising to fix the crisis in the NHS is like the arsonists promising to put out the fire they started. And on the morning broadcast rounds... We want a unifying cross-party note. We will all be hitting the phones to make sure that Matt Hancock gets more than his fair share of Bush-Tucker trials. <laughs> now, streeting, as you probably know, is unashamedly of Labour's more right-wing tradition. And he spent his first five years as an MP agitating with almost zero impact, against Jeremy Corbyn's left-wing leadership. He fought Brexit tooth and nail all the way to the very end, and lost that battle too. By late 2019, with Labour looking dead and buried, Brexit signed and sealed, and the left still in charge of his party, it seemed his once-promising political career might never actually take off. Now, three years later, he has every chance of becoming Britain's next Secretary of State for Health and is on pretty much everybody's shortlist to be the next leader of the Labour Party, too. Streeting turns 40 in January, just as this next great phase of his career opens up. So where does the Blairite's great hope go next? Has his brush with mortality changed him? 
Is he excited about the prospect of government? And would he still like to be Prime Minister someday? Wes listened to the podcast we did with David Davis back in the summer, a booze-drenched dinner, you might recall, at the Corinthia Hotel, just a few minutes stroll down the embankment from Westminster, and thought it sounded kind of fun. How you doing? You all right? Yeah, good. Yeah, good day? Yeah, every day's a good day in the low party <laughs> at the moment. So, here we are again, Monday <laughs> evening, at Kerridge's Bar and Grill, home of the finest cuts of beef SW1 has to offer and the most expensive wine list I've ever had the good fortune to encounter when Politico are paying the bill. As it did with David Davis, the evening went on a little bit longer than I'd planned, kicking off with stiff glasses of gin in the hotel bar and finishing three hours later with bitter shots of espresso after a decent bottle of Rioja. We covered everything from Streeting's difficult childhood. His grandfather was an armed robber and his mother was born in prison. I definitely had a anything you can do I can do better kind of thing to our experiences of being bullied at school it helped me actually to develop a thick skin to his view as a prominent gay politician of the World Cup in Qatar like, let's not pretend that England are the bad guys FIFA are the bad guys and to his vision for the crisis hit NHS at a time when resources are in desperately short supply the party that founded the NHS has a plan to make it fit for the future From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, I'm having dinner with Wes Streeting MP and discovering what Labour's next great hope is really all about. We're at the bar in the Corinthia, and Wes Streeting is ordering a slimline tonic with his glass of gin. Yeah, I'm so virtuous now. Is this a health... Yes, basically, when I had my cancer operation, my kind of initial exercise goals were walk from the bed (laughs) to the living room, go up and down the stairs and have a shower and all that kind of stuff. And then I I kind of went from there to walk around the block, walk to the GP surgery, uh, and I just haven't stopped since. Were you into exercise before? No, 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 I've never set foot in a gym before. Oh, good on you. But I've just taken my health a bit more. No, I do not go to the one in Parliament. (laughs) I've just heard too many horror stories about who you see in there and, yeah, it's my idea of a nightmare. When I started in 2012 at Parliament, I naively joined up because it was cheap and I was on, like, a a regional journalist wage and I was like, yeah, yeah, great. And honestly, I walked in and I think it was Jack Straw and Peter Burt. I shouldn't say this on mic. No, they're the names I've heard as well. (laughs) It's just like, no, 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 no. Wes was diagnosed with cancer in April of last year just as Keir Starmer was preparing to promote him to the shadow cabinet for the first time. He was 38 years old. I just take my health more seriously than I did before now. Because of my diagnosis, I never thought I was going to die. But I definitely had a kind of epiphany that I am not invincible and that, you know, that sounded like really morbid. (laughs) Life doesn't go on forever and you've got to take care of your health because in the end it is all you've got. Did they say to you at the start, this ain't going to kill you, Wes? Yeah, they got the, 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 the prognosis was very good. So they said, look, we caught it early, we'll have an operation, probably lose one of your kidneys, but you know, the outlook is good. So, not, not ideal though. No, but as I said to the consultant when he rang, you know, I was joking about it on the phone. I was sort of, you know, saying, well, look, you know, if I understood you correctly, you're going to whip out one of my kidneys, but that's all right because you only need one. So I'm going to be all right. He was like, well, yeah, that's one way of looking at it. I was like, well, excuse my language you did deliver this shit sandwich rather well so 
you spent too many time listening to Tory budgets to uh, know how these things are done. Yeah, the rabbit in the hat at yeah. the yeah, end right. was, yeah, you're not going to die. Good, great. The restaurant, seeing the microphone kit and so on that we've got with us, has offered us a private room for dinner. We take our seats and I start off by asking Wes if he'd ever lost faith during the Corbyn years that he'd one day be a senior member of Labour's front bench and actually preparing for government. I was always in the camp that said we had a responsibility to stay and fight and to... Um, make the Labour Party a serious political party again. Did it not feel hopeless though? It was hard, but in a first-past-the-post system where you've got two political parties that are likely to be in power, while I you know, understood and respected why you know, people chose to leave the Labour Party, I, I maintained a view that it would be irresponsible to surrender Britain's main opposition party to a politics which its proponents would say had a radical and hopeful vision for the country, but I would say rightly and understandably had the country worried, particularly in terms of national security, particularly in terms of anti-Semitism and economic policy as well. And we saw with the mini-budget and the disastrous consequences that arose from it, um, what happens when your ideological blinkers take over. The mini-budget, in case you've been wisely hiding under a rock the past few months, was of course former PM Liz Truss and her Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng's ill-fated attempt to borrow billions of pounds for tax cuts right in the middle of an economic crisis. You know, I think the one thing that the Labour Party needs to continue to do is remind the country that as Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng crushed the economy, there were plenty of Conservative MPs sat behind them who cheered them on, some of whom are still in the Cabinet, um, vast majority of whom will be candidates at the next election, and they should not be um, forgiven um, for the damage they've done to people's pockets, people's livelihoods, their mortgages, their jobs... Um, it's, it's kind of reckless political vandalism of the economy and it should never be allowed to happen again. But it's an amazing thing, isn't it? I mean, this, you know, the Conservative Party that you and I have been watching since, really, since David Cameron took over, um, it's kind of a ruthless election-winning machine. And Labour have lost four elections on the top. I can't believe sitting back now and just watching them just blow themselves up. I mean, you can't believe you look, can you? It's a clown show. And one Tory minister said to me, and, you know, this is someone who is a loyalist through and through, and he said to me, it feels like what happened to you guys with Corbyn has happened to us. And I said, I'm really sorry, mate, but it's worse because you guys are in government and you are doing active harm. Politics isn't a game and it's not light entertainment. Um, someone should tell Matt Hancock that. And I, I, you know, I think I kind of speak for the majority of the voters in saying, you know, politics will be doing its job when it's not dominating the top of the broadcast bulletins. And at the moment, politics has definitely felt like it's gotten in the way. And, you know, this is the sort of cautionary note for the Labour Party is there is still a hell of a lot of people out there who don't see politics as the answer. Our waiter brings us some menus. 
it is properly high-end brasserie fare. Um, are you going to order the crispy pig's head? <laughs> the David Cameron special. Oh my god. Uh, no, I'm not going to order the crispy pig's head. No, I'm but, not going to have that. But the good news is this is all on Politico, so um, feel free to order whatever you like. Oh, wow. Yeah. Are you going to get the beef? If you get the beef, I'll feel less guilty about beef. having the right, beef. Okay. But I'm not going to have the truffle mash, so therefore that's that's better value. <laughs> See, Wes staying true to his working class roots there by not ordering the truffle mash. Okay. I'm actually really relieved we're having dinner here this evening because really? I came home from Sheffield yesterday because uh, I was in Peniston and Stocksbridge campaigning and then we stayed over with my partner and, and his mum in Sheffield uh, and so I came back yesterday, Joe's, Joe's still up in Sheffield with his mum and uh, I came home having a late lunch, early dinner and I see a little field mouse run across my living room. Oh, mate. And I spent eight hours play, literally playing cat and mouse with this mouse because I was absolutely determined <laughs> to catch it and get it out of the house. In the end, the, the, only, the only thing that emerged from this eight-hour circus was a, a well-fed mouse because I tried to lay <laughs> these, these sort of... Because I don't have any traps in the house. And so I basically put a vase down with some peanut butter in it. And the mouse loved the peanut butter. They do like it. I wasn't fast enough to catch him. Wes spends a lot of his time campaigning in marginal constituencies like Peniston and Stocksbridge, a South Yorkshire seat that the Tories won for the first time in 2019. I asked him what people on the doorstep make of Keir Starmer and whether it's true that they find him, well, kind of dull. Uh, They definitely haven't made their mind up entirely about him. I think they can see that he's serious. I think they they can see he comes from a... Uh, yeah, he's got. A, he comes. He comes into politics with serious heavyweight experience of having run a big public service in the Crown Prosecution Service. But he's not very exciting. One though, of the well, one of the reasons why I thought his Times interview was brilliant at the weekend, and one of the things that I don't think because it's not just about Keir, it's about the whole the whole team's got responsibility to get this across. Um, I don't think enough people are still aware of Keir's own working class background. And the fact he is a working class success story that I think lots of people would find inspirational. He's not getting people's pulses racing. We know that, you know, every focus group says it. You talk to your mates, no one's, no one's excited about Keir Starmer, are they? You know that. Like, is, does that matter? Maybe it doesn't matter, I don't know. But it's not a Tony Blair thing, 96, where everyone's jumping up and down for this person. I don't want him to be someone he isn't. I don't need him to do the kind of fake bombastic buffoonery of Boris Johnson. I just need him to be his authentic self because I feel that, you know, we can sell that to the country because after years of unserious leadership, which has manifested itself in different ways, um, you know, through Rishi Sunak, through Liz Truss, through Boris Johnson, Keir, I think, shows serious leadership. I also think unlike what will hopefully be his conservative predecessors as prime minister uh, he has experienced things in life which help him to walk in the shoes of the country that he wants to lead and the problems he wants to solve he's got a plan he's got a strategy he's following it um, and he's a strong leader and that's what i think the country is looking for is strong leadership but they're looking for something else as well which is like a a vision, right? Like a vision for the future. And I just I don't think Labour's 
shown that yet. I mean, maybe we're two years from an election and that's fine, but can you inspire people in the way Tony Blair was doing? Ooh, that's the popping of a call. Yeah, that's so I was distracted inspiring. by the widening, <laughs> right. not avoiding your question. Thank you. How do you get people excited about Labour rather than just pleased it's not a dysfunctional Tory party? It's been difficult because whenever you've, we've been on the telly recently, it's usually, there's, there's been some kind of almost daily, sometimes in recent months, hourly disaster on the part of the government. So inevitably you go on to be asked questions like, the Home Secretary who's resigned for a national security breach has been reappointed. What's Labour's response to that? Or the Deputy Prime Minister has been accused of bullying, has referred himself to... Um, an independent investigation. What's Labour's response to that? And it's very hard when you get those sorts of questions to not stick the boot in. And we'd sound a little bit odd. It was like, well, I don't really want to talk about Dominic Raab throwing tomatoes at people. I'd rather talk about Labour's plans. But that, increasingly, that's what we are doing. I do this quite a lot now of just saying, well, look, we can see the, the disaster of the NHS under the Conservatives. So let me give you some hope with Labour's plan. I think it's probably one of the biggest expansions of NHS staff in history, doubling the number of medical school places, 10,000 more nursing and midwifery clinical training places, 5,000 more um, uh, health visitors, doubling the number of district nurses uh, qualifying. And that's in addition to our big mental health pledge, which we announced last year. I mean, that gets to the heart of the NHS crisis, which is a staffing crisis. So I think the more we talk about our policies and our offer, the more we inspire the country. Right, and our... Our crab cakes are here, which what's I have this, to say, what's I this have on top? No Is that jelly? idea what I am looking at here. It's got some sort of layer on the top. Yeah, it's very fancy. You're, you're missing out <laughs> if you're listening to this. <laughs> Whatever's on top is not plastic. It is no, it's uh, good. very nice. You don't really want to know what it is, right? It's probably better than what Matt Hancock's eating at the moment. Oh. So. Have you been watching? Um, on and off. Do you know Matt? Are you friends? No, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say we're friends. <laughs> uh, it was very nice to me when I went off with my cancer operation. Um, sent me a nice message and I, I said I would do some mystery shopping on the NHS and let him know how I got on. But by the time I came back, he was gone. Um, <laughs> he was doing his own mystery shopping, I think, in the <laughs> Department of Health. Oh, I think that was his audition, wasn't it, for I'm a Celebrity. You know, he's, yeah. he's used to him. being filmed on camera. <laughs> in cameras and embarrassing situations, yeah. you're right. Yeah. Maybe that should have been my first pledge of Shadow Health Secretary. You know, I'm, 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 I'm not going to take the same hands-on approach that Matt Hancock did. Now, if you know anything about Wes Streeting, it's probably about his difficult childhood. A council estate in Stepney, a single-parent family only seeing his dad at weekends, struggling for money, visiting grandparents in jail... It's not exactly the background of your typical frontline politician. The thing I wanted to know most about Wes was how, and honestly why, he managed to get out of that environment and into Westminster, of all places. And the thing that's really interesting to me is, like, how, how you decide to get there. Because, I mean, I've come from a completely middle-class background. The idea of getting into politics just was never on my radar or put on my radar. It just would never have occurred to me at any conversation I had at any point in my education was that a thing growing up in Stockport at a state school. And obviously for some people, this is a thing. You know, you, you meet these very posh people who are sort of pushed through. And for you, I'd imagine it was so far removed from what most people at your school were thinking about. Like, how do you 
mentally get into a place where you're like, yeah, I'd like to be an MP? Um, I was very lucky in that I had people in my family and teachers at school who really pushed me and, and encouraged me to aim high and almost to develop a bit of, you know, I don't have a chip on my shoulder in the sense of resenting people who have lived a life of privilege because it's not, that's not really me and it's not my politics. Um, but I definitely had a growing up a sort of anything you can do, I can do better kind of, you know, just because you went to a posh school or just because you come from a wealthy background doesn't mean that I can't, you know, achieve the same things or aspire to the same kind of future as, as you. That's just, that is the sort of heart. It's a competitive streak. Yeah, I've definitely got a competitive streak. Um, yeah, very much so. Was, was it a good school? I mean, do you feel like you had a good school No, experience? it's in special measures while <laughs> I was there. Um, but I had great teachers. It was... Yeah, it was a very challenging school, but I had great teachers. Did you enjoy school? I mean, oh, yeah. Did I, you? I loved, I loved school drama. I did love going to school. Sometimes going to school felt like an escape from home. But uh, yeah, my my school. There's a lot of bullying in secondary school. Um, it was a tough inner city boys' school, so it's pretty. You know, it helped me actually to develop a thick skin. I mean, I wouldn't wish for schools to have bullying environments, but I definitely built a lot of my resilience and rhinoceros-like skin from my time at secondary school, which is why, you know, the, the, the trolling that I get on social media is a bit like water off a, off a duck's back for me without mixing my metaphors of duck's backs and rhinoceros skin. But yeah, it's bullying why... Is you know, cool. Bullying at school can be brutal. It's brutal. And it's worse, it's even worse for kids today than when I was at school. Because when I left school at the end of the day, that was the end of it until the next day. And by then, you know, people might have forgotten events of the day before. You might be in different classes with different kids, depending on what was going on. But now, the bullying follows kids home. Like, it's on their phones. It's, you know, it's in their bedrooms with them, you know, coming through on their social media channels. And that's really tough. I think it's harder to be a teenager now than it was when I was a kid, um, you know, because as well as you know, putting to one side the, the, the bullying element, there's just a huge amount of really difficult body image stuff. You're bombarded with marketing and promotion that tells you what your perfect life should look like. And that's before we get to the really dark corners of the internet in terms of things like suicide ideation and the way in which eating disorders are actively promoted and targeted at vulnerable young people. You know, I've got friends at bullet school. I certainly had bullying experiences at school, like being on the receiving end of it. I found that pretty scarring experience. You grew from it and felt strong. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't recommend it as an experience. Um, some of it, some of it, I brought on myself. Like after I stood in our school mock election as the Labour candidate in 1997, where I think I was one of the few Labour candidates that day not to get elected. I came a respectable second to the Monster Raven Looney Party. Um, <laughs> I, I, I won a I won a prize at our sort of school's prize giving, and all, any all the kids who won prizes got book tokens, and you you're presented your book by the guest presenter and. I chose Tony Blair's New Labour, New Britain, My Vision of a Young Country, a collection of his speeches. <laughs> and like, I was reading that on the coach to him from, like we used to have games down in um, Mitcham, because my school was slap bang in the middle of, in Victoria. So we used to get on the coach to Mitcham. This is so not typical secondary school behaviour. No, I know exactly. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I sort of, 
you know, I'm not saying I deserve to be bullied because no one does, but like, honestly, like, there are some things I could have just done to insulate myself. But, but you didn't care. No, I mean, that's not really. Interesting. No. That's interesting. You know, a lot of people sort of shrink or mould themselves to what's expected. Like, yeah. Why not? Like, who's giving you that strength when you're a kid to be... School drama, school drama and the kids I hung around with in school drama was... You're an actor really at heart. Was, yeah, I loved, I loved it. I absolutely loved school drama all the way through. Uh, this, I, I bottled it at university. It's the only time I've lacked the courage to even try um, because of fear of not being as good as kids from, or you know, students at that stage. And this um, is at Cambridge we're yeah. talking now, where... Uh, you know, the, the reputation of, like, the Footlights, the ADC, you know, really big actors have come out and comedians have come out from that space. And so I didn't even audition. And I'm looking back, it's my only regret of my time at university, apart from maybe not working harder on my degree. <laughs> Which was a history, history degree. degree. Mm. Uh, yes, my only regret was that I didn't even try. And it was because I was... You know, I was nervous and intimidated and I'm ashamed of myself for that. It's interesting. I was wondering when we were coming down here if you'd enjoyed school or not. And you said you did, partly because it was an escape from home. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, my, my home life wasn't particularly um, easy when I was growing up. Um, you know, it was, I sort of spent the first 11 or 12 years of my life living with my mum and then... Uh, lived with my dad until my late 20s. You know, it was, we had challenges, particularly when I lived with my mum, we had real challenges growing up and it was difficult for my mum, you know, raising me on on her own. Although my dad's always been in my life and it's it's, it's a constant source of irritation to him and to me when occasionally people write up a shorthand, you know, brought up by a single mother. Because for the, you know, more than a decade that I lived with my mum, my dad was always in my life, always... Um, upheld his responsibility to me financially, emotionally. I see him every weekend. Um, and then I went to live with him throughout my teenage years, which are arguably the most difficult years. Um, and uh, But, you know, when you grow up in a house with no money and when, you know, your mum's reliant on the benefit system to put food in the fridge and money electric, electric meter, it was, it was difficult. Um, some of my mum's relationships weren't always very easy for her. Um and, you know, and for me, uh, so it was, so, you know, going to school was a happy place. And sometimes being at home was not a happy place, um, despite the fact that, you know, my mum was a really good mum and, you know, my dad has always been in my life. And you're a better politician for having lived through that, do you think, now? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, you know, experiencing poverty or, and hardship is not a prerequisite to be a politician, um, but it is a useful qualification in terms of tackling the problems that exist in our society. You know, Tony Blair was right about a lot of things, but not about a classless society. We still have a society that is riven by class inequality. And that is at the centre of my politics and why I'm a member of the Labour Party. And it's what separates me from, you know, liberals that I might share um, some common views and values with. But fundamentally, my analysis of what's wrong with our country is a class-based analysis. And uh, I think if the Conservatives have more people from my background sat around the cabinet table, they would not have made some of the disastrous choices they have over the last 12 years in terms of the benefit system, in terms of free school meals, in ter- you know, and this, this sort of 
wrong-headed notion that if only we all pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, we can all get on. Tell that to people who are holding down three or four jobs, um, working at or below minimum wage, that, that hard work is a route out of poverty. If there's, if there's anything that should shame the Conservatives, it's, it's the level of in-work poverty in this country and the fact that the link between a hard day's work and a fair day's pay has been broken. Uh, that's, that's what we've got to really fix. Coming up in part two, the main course. Plus, we'll be discussing Wes's relationship with the Labour left, with God, and his unlikely love of Star Wars Lego. Stay with us. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. As a proud member of Labour's so-called moderate wing, Wes Streeting has a famously difficult relationship with what remains of the Corbynista left. The charge against him from left-wing opponents is that his politics are simply not radical enough to bring the change that Britain needs. My politics are pragmatic. They're principled and pragmatic, not dogmatic um, or utopian. The Labour Party is not a utopian party. It is not and never has been a far-left party. There are still people who refer to the 2017 and 2019 manifestos as if they are sacred texts. What use is a radical manifesto that sits on a shelf gathering dust with not a single one of those policies implemented? Does it upset you when they're shouting red Tory at you and all that? Oh, look, I'm I'm just used to the fact I am now going to be a pantomime villain for the hard left row. There are people on the left, I think many of whom are now outside the Labour Party, thank goodness, but who genuinely think I want to privatise the National Health Service and end an NHS that is free at the point of use. And that could not be further away from what I believe in. And, you know, the, the, there are many awful things about having a kidney cancer diagnosis, but the best thing about that experience is that I didn't have to worry about the bill at any point. I think we, we already have an increasingly two-tier system in this country. People who can afford to pay to go private 
and also some people who can't afford it but are scrimping and scraping to get scans to get a, a faster diagnosis. It's my ambition to end a two-tier health system and to do what the last Labour government did. If you look at what happened to, to up, you know, take up of private health care under new Labour, it plummeted. Why? Because the state sector was so good that people didn't feel the force to go private. That's my ambition. And I think that is a far smarter, more effective and constructive and achievable way of achieving labour ends than simply saying, oh, we're going to requisition the private sector or nationalise it. You've got a problem, though, haven't you? Because if you do win the election in 2024 or whenever it comes, there's going to be a note in the Treasury saying, sorry, there's no money left, isn't there? You know the economic situation you would be taking over, and it's pretty clear now it's not going to improve markedly in the next few months. The NHS is facing multiple Mm. crises, you're not going to be able to do the things that you necessarily want to do. Like, it's, you know, taxing non-DOMs is one thing, but it's not going to solve the problems of the NHS, is it? One of the bits of preparation for government we've been doing is um, Rachel Reeves and Pat McFadden saying no, <laughs> which is, I think, you know, exactly how they will conduct themselves when they go into the Treasury, which is not to say that Rachel and Pat are sort of heartless monsters who don't want us to do things that would make a real difference. It's that, especially for the moment while we're in opposition, they are absolutely determined not to make promises we can't keep. And to be honest with the country that the consequence of the Conservatives crashing the economy and delivering more than a decade of low growth and low productivity and high taxes is that we are not going to be able to do everything we would want to do as fast as we would like to. Um, So... There is a very high bar to get something agreed. You have to demonstrate why you think this is a top priority in your area um, because you are not going to get a big shopping list of, 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 of policies signed off. Um, and that's why we went with the workforce pledge because at the heart of the NHS's crisis is we don't have enough doctors, we don't have enough nurses, we don't have enough allied health professionals... And if I were to just go out there saying, right, the NHS needs change and modernisation, I think people would rightly say, yeah, you know, you and whose army? Where are these people to deliver it? Um, We have fabulous looking steak things in front of us. Yeah, (laughs) and look at this this creamy mash as well. Look at it. I don't even know what that's got in it. It's very creamy mash, actually. Isn't it? Too creamy? They've definitely loaded the cream in. The struggle in Westminster is real. Next up, we talk about the opinion polls and the extraordinary double-digit lead Labour has opened up over the past 12 months. For a whole generation of Labour politicians like Wes, who've spent their entire careers in opposition, ministerial jobs now seem to beckon. So is he excited? Oh, massively. I mean, it'd be amazing. feels real. It'd be an amazing chance. Um... And I do think the Labour Party has got an amazing opportunity, um, it, it, but it could still slip through our fingers. If I had a pound for every time that Keir Starmer says no room for complacency, I could join Rishi Sunak on the Sunday Times Rich List. And he is absolutely right. He's absolutely right about this. You're going to have some very difficult choices if you come into power because of the lack of money in the, uh, in the UK economy and the lack of money that the next government will have to spend, and I think everyone can see that. The OBR in the budget last week was pretty clear what one of the reasons for that was. 
can't remember the exact fact because I've been sat here drinking this very nice Rioja for um, an hour now, but the UK economy will apparently be significantly smaller than it would have been had we not voted for Brexit. Mm. Now, you were very, very clear as a backbench Labour MP, not in hock to the party line at the time, Wes, and you were very clear that Brexit was a terrible mistake and that you would argue for remain essentially a second referendum. Now you're a front bencher, you're not allowed to say any of that stuff anymore. And you <laughs> you have to pretend that what you really think is that Brexit's a good idea and we can definitely make the best of it with some imaginary renegotiation with the EU, which everybody knows isn't going to happen because the EU won't have it. It's kind of hard for you, isn't it, to square that circle? Well, I think I think it's just an objective fact that the economic consequences of Brexit have made the challenges harder. But what I have had, I think I'm at the stage of the cycle of grief now. What's the final <laughs> stage? Is it like acceptance? acceptance? Is that the final stage? Not sure. Um, it's definitely one of the stages. Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm definitely at the end of the... Like, uh, it's very painful, but I'm afraid this is the consequence of losing. We lost the referendum. We lost the argument to have a people's vote on the Brexit deal. We lost two general elections that we arguably could have won under different leadership. And so the country's left the European Union, has left the European Union on Boris Johnson's terms, which is, you know, a, a Brexit deal that's about as watertight as a sieve. And I understand the sort of the emotional reaction to that of Remainers. But I think with respect to people that I've fought alongside throughout that tumultuous period, what do they reasonably expect our political leaders to do? Because let's imagine, for argument's sake, that we said tomorrow, do you know what? Brexit's been a disaster. Our economic outlook would be better if we were still members of the European Union. Labour's going to commit to being members of the European Union. A few things would happen in short order. There would be a collective groan from across the country saying, oh my God, literally the only thing that can make this country's news and politics more unbearable is refighting that bin fire. The European Union would kind of say, you know... (laughs) not on your life, like we're still overcoming the trauma of having to deal with your negotiating team to get you out. Um, it's just not, it's not, it's just not realistic. It's not there. It's not on the table. So instead of clutching for something which has gone and is not going to be regained anytime soon, why not take a more pragmatic approach that says... Let's try and make this relationship work. There are loads of things that we can and should do with the European Union. There are loads of barriers to trade that we could remove with the European Union that does not involve entering into a membership or a relationship with the EU that um, people who voted Leave would view as a betrayal. We're just going to get some coffee, please, if that's all right. Should we get the bill as well? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and we'll get the bill. Thank you. I've kept you here for two and a half hours. I'm just going to listen to all of this. I hope you're going to chop out all my boring bits. Absolutely. Most of it will just be me talking, to be honest. (laughs) Uh, Here's Morgan approach to interviewing. (laughs) Over coffee, we discuss the Qatar World Cup, 
and the England team's decision that day to back down in the face of pressure from FIFA and not wear armbands showing solidarity with the LGBT community. Wes is visibly angry with FIFA and does not agree with my suggestion that wearing an armband seemed like a pretty tokenistic gesture anyway. I don't think we should underestimate how powerful it still is for young LGBT kids to see their national football team in a, you know, a sport where we still do not have an openly gay Premier League footballer, even though we know that they exist, to have your national team send a message of LGBT inclusivity, I still think is very powerful. And I, I, wish, I wish when I was watching Euro 96 as a kid that I'd seen that kind of message then. Because even in, in the 90s, you know, one of the reasons it took me a long time to come out as gay was partly about my religion, um, partly about just fear of prejudice and fear about being gay affecting my life chance. You know, I already felt like I had enough disadvantages in my life without having a set what I've kind of, at the time, considered a self-inflicted one. One of the things that did change feeling comfortable in my own skin was the last Labour government because they changed laws, they changed hearts and minds. And in the process of arguing for the abolition of Section 28 or the end of discrimination in the armed forces, they were having to make an argument that said fundamentally, it is okay to be gay. And, you know, I heard that message as a kid and that made me accept myself. So I just think I'm so glad that kids grow up in today's day and age where they do see people who look like them on TV and they see people who don't necessarily look like them or, or don't share their identity saying, you know, you're included, you're part of our, you're part of our team. And I think that's what England have done really successfully and really powerfully. Is it hard to be religious and be a politician? Do you know, I would have said no. My Christianity isn't particularly evangelical. You know, I'm a practising Christian, but only practising in the extent that I'm still not very good at it. But, you know, since talk, what was really interesting to me is the first time it started sort of appearing in interviews that, you know, I'm a Christian, people's attitudes towards me and perceptions really changed. And there was a, quite a lot of social media which said, why are you talking about this? I don't think religion has any role in politics. Don't you shove your religious opinions down our throat? And I was like, whoa, whoa hang on a minute. You know, I'm, I am as liberal as they come and secular as they come, actually, when it comes to politics. The sadness for me about that is, I think, one of the reasons people do feel like that about not just Christianity, but religion in politics, is people associate religion with denying people rights. So suddenly it's, does that mean you're going to take away my right to choose? Does that mean you're going to take away my right to love? You know, I, you know people can look at my record. I, um, you know, strongly support women's rights to choose. Um, I changed my mind on assisted dying, so I was one of the a small minority of MPs who voted in favour of the assisted dying bill. But you know what Alistair Campbell says about this? Yeah, thing. don't do God. Uh, Is that wrong? Uh, well, I think I understand where his cynicism about it comes from now, because um, I've experienced some of it. And it's amazing, like sometimes people tweet things like, I'm sorry, but I can't take a politician who believes in a made-up fairy story seriously, which... You know, it, it is a it's a sobering reminder of how people view religion. and um, But I don't see my faith as a weakness. I see it as a strength. 
Wesley's religious views certainly haven't stopped him being the life and soul of the party on occasions. I have vague memories of once being dragged to a karaoke bar at two in the morning by a Labour MP, who's now a very prominent member of the Shadow Cabinet, only to find Streeting, and several others, already in there and bringing the house down with a series of raucous numbers. Does he still get up to that kind of thing? I can't remember the last time I was out until two in the morning with anyone. Um, is this because you're a shadow house? I think it is. Like, I've become so boring now. Um, <laughs> I think it's probably middle-agedness as well. I mean, I'm 40 in January. Um, this is the point where you say, 40? I can't believe it. You don't look that old. Um, anyway, uh, you missed your cue. Uh, we, can, we can edit the silence out. Let me, let me do that. Let's do that a bit again. Um, I'm, you know, I'm middle-agedness. I'm 40 in January. You never are. 40. Oh, stop it! Yes, Come I am. On. I know. I Baby don't. Baby-faced West Streeting. Okay. <laughs> are you going to be taking stock of things when you turn 40? It's kind of a big moment. I turned 40 a couple of three years ago, and it was no, you, I, no I, way. I you don't look. Like, see that? See how it's done? Right. This is the politician's oh. charm, isn't it? I think. But it's like it's a it's a big thing. It is, yeah. Uh, I mean, the thing is, I, I sort of, in some ways, I feel like I've done this a bit early because one of the things that cancer did was make me think a bit more about my own mortality and think a bit more about my life choices. So I almost feel like I've done that already. The really, really weird thing about the experience I had was the aftermath of the operation where I basically switched off. Like, I deleted WhatsApp from my phone. I basically watched the news like a normal person, which was not every day, and usually only the six or the ten. I, I really like just took stock and just shut the world off. And I read loads of books. I I made Lego. I did like you loads. Made Lego. Yeah, like really. Well, the weird thing was basically one of my friends sent me because I like Star Wars. So he sent me some Star Wars Lego. Now I'm not Lego. I'm not one of these people. I say this like judgmentally, but I don't mean it like that. I'm not one of these people in their sort of late 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s who just sit there making Lego sets and the bowl those adult sets. I don't think that's ever going to be me. But a friend of mine bought me a Lego set, Star Wars Lego set, and said, I know this is completely random, but I, I just thought, when will you ever normally have time to do Lego? And I was like, that's actually a really thoughtful, really nice thing to do. So I made it and I put what it... What was it? What was I think it was um, uh, Star Wars X-Wing. Okay. Wow. And I put it on Instagram. So some of my other friends saw this and so bought me Star Wars Lego. <laughs> so I ended up with loads of the stuff. Um, and so, yeah, so, so that's what I did while I was off. And, and interestingly, in that time when I was switched off with politics um, and really thought about my life and what I was doing with it, I didn't have a hint of regret about how I was spending my life and how much of my life I dedicate to politics and my work and... You know, I sort of came back almost re reaffirmed in my sort of sense of wanting to do something and achieve something. And it's interesting now, you know, we're in this sort of period where Labour can win the next general election. And, you know, as I've said to my family, who don't see nearly enough of me, who knows if we'll ever get this chance again. And if we win um, and I'm the next health secretary this may be my one chance in my political career to really make a big impact. And I don't want to look back on this period of my life with any regrets that I didn't work harder, that I didn't try harder, and that I didn't try and make the very most of this 
rare and privileged opportunity we might get. So that's Wes Streeting, turning 40 in January with his frontline political career at last on the cusp of taking off. Whether Labour can actually deliver on the promise of that 20-point poll lead remains to be seen. But it's clear that they, and Streeting, are closer to power than they've been in a very long time indeed. I do have to ask you one question by law. (laughs) Oh, and I did ask Wes about the Labour leadership and whether he'd like to be Prime Minister one day. We'd need to get a few more bottles down for like, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, you know, it's been my lifelong ambition since I was Every 10 years MP old. And he replied with you, a six-minute eulogy about how great Keir Starmer is. This is one of the remarkable things about Keir. None of which answered the question, obviously, with, and none of which um, you honestly need uh, to hear. But as a sign of the discipline of Starmer's Labour are showing as they prepare in their minds for government, really it was perhaps the most telling moment of all. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Jack Blanchard. If you've enjoyed it, do please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, You can go back and listen to past episodes, including my boozy dinner with David Davis back in June, or my interview with Labour's deputy leader, Angela Rayner, last year. My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez. We'll be back next week. See you then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.